The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Some of you would remember um, the story of Les Miserables and the character of Fontaine. Um, in, in Les Mis, when we meet Fontaine, she is uh, a beautiful teenager with long golden hair and beautiful teeth. And she has fallen in love with this man named Felix, who is in his 30s. And Felix is a total player. And Felix, um, he uh, pressures her to, to sleep together, and they do. And uh, when she becomes pregnant, he leaves her with a baby to raise. Um, now, in those days, there are no single moms in, in Paris in the 18th century. Uh, and so Fantine, uh, when she delivers Cosette, she ha- gives her away to another family to raise in another town. And she takes a job in a factory working 15 hours a day in order to pay for Cosette. Until the people in the factory find out that she has a baby. And she's fired legally for adultery. Uh, she can't find work. No one will hire her. Uh, she becomes desperate, and so Fontaine sells her hair, she sells her teeth, and eventually she turns to prostitution. And there's this powerful scene as it goes on, because uh, Fontaine has been arrested by the police, and the police bring Fontaine before the mayor of the town, and the police are ready to sentence Fontaine to six months in jail, which would be like the end of her life, and the mayor says no. The mayor, if you remember the story, he's, he, uh, he stands up for her, he shows her mercy, and his mercy changes everything. He refuses to punish her, uh, and in fact, when he realizes, when he learns what Fantine has been through, he makes some promises for her. He says, I will pay your debts, I will send for your child, or you shall go to her. You shall live here in Paris, or wherever you please. I undertake the care of your child and yourself. You shall not work any longer if you do not like. I will give all the money you require. You shall be honest and happy once more. And when Fontaine hears this, she is so overwhelmed by his mercy that she kisses him on the hand and she faints. And, and, and you hearing that, you might ask, like, why was Fontaine treated so harshly in the first place? Like, did she really deserve to have her whole life ruined? Yes, she sinned. She messed up. Did she deserve to have her life ruined over this? Um, and, and if you're like the people in that culture, Paris in the 18th century, staunchly Catholic, um, the, yes, that is how you handle sinners. Because sin is a disease. She got what she deserved because sin is a disease. It's like a virus. And, and she's dangerous. She is, she's, what she has might be contagious. And so we need to be protected from her. And that's how you, that's how you respond to sinners uh, in that culture. Now, um, maybe you see the parallels between that story and what we heard read in our scripture reading today. Um, it's kind of a timely one for us, right? Um, it's timely because we realize... Um, how we treat sinners, how we treat sinners depends on what kind of a problem we believe sin is. 
Isn't that right? How we treat sinners depends on what kind of a problem we believe sin is. Now, we, um, we're continuing this morning, obviously, through our series in the Gospel of John, where we, which uh, we're calling um, Jesus is what God wants to say. Each week as we go along, we're seeing that Jesus shows us, uh, as we watch his example, as we listen to his teaching, he shows us what God is like. Um, there is a phone number at the top of the screen, as, as always, and you are invited as we go along to uh, text in questions. I won't name you if you're on my contacts list, but uh, at the end of the service, we'll, we'll uh, answer those questions together. We've covered a lot of ground in this uh, series already, but this morning where we pick it up is in this story of Jesus and his interaction with the woman caught in adultery. And there are a lot of problems in this story, as, as we're going to see. In fact, um, my aim this morning as we sort of cover the scope of the story, as we, as we enter the text, we're going to just sort of learn and study this passage by considering the, the problems that it raises. And there, there are six, all right? There's a, a Bible problem. So if you're an outline person, there's a Bible problem. There is a hypocrisy problem. There's an integrity problem and an identity problem. And there's a justice problem and a mercy problem. Okay, so we're going to study the, the passage in light of these problems, and um, we'll be out of here by uh, supper. So to begin, there's a, a Bible problem, all right? So if you brought a bound Bible, if you have a Bible in your hand, you probably see that there is a separation of this passage from other parts of the text. How many of you, you see that? Okay, so there's a, maybe a line, or it's a different kind of text, or maybe there's some square brackets around it. That's because this story, as it turns out, wasn't part of John's original gospel account. <gasps> My goodness. So let me, listen, let me explain what, what this is. So the earliest Greek manuscripts that we have don't include this story. It means that John didn't write this. Okay? So there's no actual written record of this story before the mid-2nd century. It's widely agreed or widely uh, understood that this happened. That this is a true story, but John didn't write this. And so for some people, that raises a big problem. Like, I know pastors who wouldn't preach this passage. They, I, know, I know people who, don't, who, who, who believe that this shouldn't be included in the Bible. And so depending on what your uh, view is of the inspiration of Scripture, depending on your view of inerrancy, um, this story might give you a, a, a Bible problem. And so we should ask, why is it here? Like, why is this included? And it's included because the early church, the early Christians felt that, what, that this story of Jesus was not only true, but it was so important that we couldn't afford to leave it out. And we, it needed to be in, included. And so they decided to include it here as they collected the stories and gathered the stories that would become our New Testament. They included it here. And I agree. So, the, yes, there is a Bible problem we shouldn't ignore. As we go on, there's also a hypocrisy problem. There's a hypocrisy problem. So let's enter the story at verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. I'm reading from the Christian Standard uh, Bible, which is, there are some slight differences from the ESV, but your version, I'm sure, is is just as good. So just just follow along. Um, Teacher, verse 4, they said to him, This woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? So now we have a problem here because you've got the scribes and Pharisees who are sort of the fundamentalists in that culture. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but when the fundamentalists get together and they bring their Bible to a party to talk about how to deal with sinners, 
Uh, somebody always, it doesn't always go well, and somebody always ends up getting stoned. I didn't mean it to sound like that, but it's, that's, that is how it, that's how it often turns out. Um, here, you've got this, my, this mob of scribes and Pharisees, and they are, they're here to, to pressure Jesus to have this woman stoned, to do something that they understand is biblical, and they actually have good biblical warrant uh, for saying so. Leviticus chapter 20, going all the way back to Leviticus. In Leviticus, it says, If a man commits adultery with a married woman, if he commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. You see that, right? Okay, Deuteronomy 22. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You with me? Now, um, no one is arguing whether this woman is guilty. We're not debating that point. Of course she is. But where's the man? Right? Where is he? Like, adultery takes two. uh, and, And so we should ask, like, where is he? It seems like maybe there's something else going on uh, with the rage and the moral outrage of, of this mob. They're like, they're like the Twitter mob. Um, they're like the Twitter trolls who jump on and shame uh, an abuse victim because she, she dressed so seductively, but they ignore the actions of, of the man to give the guy a pass. These, these guys are like, they're like the religious folks who sort of circle their wagons around their churches in order to protect their churches from certain kinds of sinners and they ignore other kinds of sinners in their midst. These guys, they're not here to support her. They're not here to listen. They're not here to uh, understand her story or empathize. They are the, the, the sin police. They're the Bible squad, and they have come to Jesus, hoping that he's going to rid their world of sinners. And what they have in mind, though, isn't all sinners. It's the female kind. It's, it's the female kind. And, 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 and that is not the way of Jesus. Okay? That's hypocrisy. That is not the way of Jesus. And so there is a hypocrisy problem. There, that's not the only problem here. And as we keep going, we see that Jesus now faces a test. He faces an integrity problem. So verse, uh, verse 6. We'll pick it up in verse 6. Um, they asked this to trap Jesus, to trap him, in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. And Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. So another dynamic of this story that I think is important for us to catch is it's actually Jesus who is on trial here and and not the woman. Um, So these men, they think that they've got Jesus trapped. Uh, If he agrees that she should be stoned, then um, they get to get get on Jesus' case and say, Ah, well, where's your forgiveness now, Jesus? Where's your mercy now? Where's all that about blessed are the merciful? Where's all your teaching about turn the other cheek? Like all that, sound, all that stuff sounded really nice in your Sermon on the Mount on, on Sunday. But now it's Monday and, and, and now's when it matters. And it turns out, Jesus, you are just as fundamentalist uh, as the rest. That's one issue here. On, this, on, on the other hand, though, if Jesus decides to let her go... If he decides that she should be released, then they've got him too, because they get to say, the scriptures are clear on this matter, Jesus. We still take the Bible very seriously. We consider the Bible important. Clearly, you don't. And so, Jesus, you're canceled. Now, there's another layer to the story, though. 
because Judea is a colony of the Roman Empire. They're under Roman rule and Roman law. If Jesus tells the crowd that, they sh- that she should be stoned to death, and if they do, he can be arrested by the Romans. See, Jews can't just go around uh, executing sinners. Um, and, and so if, if Jesus were to go ahead and, and give his endorsement to having her executed, some people would see that as Jesus putting himself above Caesar. And, and so there are all of these layers. There is an integrity problem here. It's like, Jesus, who do you think you are? Are you going to be consistent with your own teaching? How does Jesus respond to the sin and the sinners around here? Well, we're going to see because there is another problem. It's, it's perhaps deeper, perhaps more personal. And so for, if, if as we look at Jesus, we see an, what, what is an integrity problem, as we turn our attention now towards the woman, we see an identity problem. There's an identity problem. What do I mean? Now, I don't know if you, anyone here struggles or has struggled with sexual sin. I have nobody in mind and I'm not making assumptions Um, Let me say that in some ways, sexual sin is no different than other sin areas. In some ways, it is uh, unique. Let's be clear, though. No one is a victim of sexual sin. Okay? No one is a victim of their sexual sin. When, When temptation comes, if you're a follower of Jesus, if God's Spirit lives in you, you get a vote in what happens next. Amen? It doesn't have to go down badly. You get a vote in what happens next. But if you've struggled with sexual sin, uh, you know what this is like. It, it, it thrills you and it condemns you. And there are periods of, of victory and there are long periods of failure punctuated by more periods of, of victory. And there's this ongoing cycle and you suspect and you dread that it's always going to be this way. And, and, and because of the huge effort that it takes to conceal this and to hide it from your, your family and your co-workers and other people in your life, it becomes this big secret. Because of that, it becomes the lens through which you see your whole life and your relationships and your, your profession and your time. In other words, sexual sin becomes your identity. It becomes your identity. Now think, we don't even know who this woman is. We don't have a name for her. We only know her by her sin. And so what happens to her is actually every sexual sinner's worst nightmare. It's the, the fear of, of being found out. It's the fear of being caught and exposed. This woman has been caught in the act. She's been caught in the act by her neighbors, the people who know her, in the place, in the moment of her greatest shame and humiliation, and they've taken that and they've weaponized it against her. And they've taken her and now they've brought her before Jesus, this teacher of holiness, and there is a crowd. And so this is the worst case scenario. And if Jesus doesn't do something radical, she is never going to recover from this. So I don't want to overlook this. I I pray that you never find yourself in this situation where you feel stuck in sexual sin. But if you do, if you do, what has to happen? What has to happen um, to break the power of sexual sin in your life? What has to happen? What has to change for it to lose its power in your life? Uh, I, I don't know if you know this. I hope that you do. But you have to know, you have to know that you're free. 
You have to know that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You need to know that you get a vote, that you can say no to temptation when it comes. And that's impossible in her situation. That has been taken from her. Her whole identity is her sin. She can't beat this thing on her own. Not in this moment. If if she could have beaten this on her own, she would have. And that is where we meet this woman. And here she is, surrounded by the, 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 the sin police, surrounded by a crowd, and here is Jesus. And what's Jesus doing? He is writing on the ground. Okay, what is that? What's going on there? Um, you might wonder, what is Jesus writing on the ground? And I want you to know, I agree with uh, the theologian James Montgomery Boyce, who said, let me say frankly that I do not know why Jesus wrote on the ground. And what's more, I do not believe that anyone else does either. I agree with Boyce. We don't know. Nobody knows for sure what, what's going on here. There's lots of theories. Um, I actually, if, if I were pressed and had to give an answer, I wonder if it's kind of a message to the woman, like, listen, I've got an idea. But if this doesn't work, you've got to get ready to run. I don't know. That's, my, that's kind of a theory. I wouldn't die for that. Now, um, we, let's go on and continue in the story. Verse 7, and see that there is a, an important justice problem here. Okay, there's a justice problem. Verse 7, when they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, the one who is without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and continued writing on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left uh, with the woman in the center. So the mob has dispersed. It's just uh, her and Jesus. Imagine yourself watching from the crowd. Uh, I hope you can sort of see the situation. I hope you can feel it. Um, What you've just seen is a serious justice problem. Because on the one hand, yes, she is a sinner. And they want her condemned because God has said no to adultery. You know, they want her stopped. They want her stopped before she can sleep with their husbands. They want her stopped because it's not fair if she gets to get away with uh, adultery and, and they don't. Right? I mean, like, let's be honest. Um, on the other hand, these men are sinners too. They're sinners too, it turns out. We, we want these guys stopped. We want the sin police stopped because we like the idea of there being sin police if it's us, if it's we who make the decisions. Um, when it's our job, but these guys are just jerks. These guys are just, are just hypocrites. Um, and, and so we want them stopped because we know um, that eventually they're going to come for us. And so if you're in the crowd, you're, you're just confused now. You're like, what is going on? There's this, maybe, maybe you're like one of the people who is, maybe you're happy for her, that she, um, she's been rescued, she's been shown mercy. But if you're like a lot of us, the way that a lot of us were raised, you probably look at this situation and you're like, how is this a solution? How is this a solution? How is this justice? How do we trust God in a world where sinners get away with adultery? Come on. How do we trust God in a world where sinners get away with adultery? This is a justice problem. And your solution, the way you think of the solution to this problem, depends on how you think of sin. Because maybe you're like the crowd. Maybe you're like these people, and you think of sin mainly as a crime, as an offense, as rebellion, and, it, and the solution is to be punished with wrath and, and judgment. 
Or maybe you think of sin like an infection, like a disease. And so we need to isolate the sinner, exclude her. Um, The problem is that these aren't the only biblical ways to think of sin, are they? If sin is a disease, isn't God the one who heals? Not, he doesn't quarantine uh, sinners. Isn't sin a problem of separation and God is the one who reconciles us? Isn't it true that sin is a problem of lostness and sinners need to be found? Isn't it true that, sinner, that's, that's, that sin is a problem of death and what sinners need is a, res- a resurrection? Isn't it true that sin is a problem of blindness and what sinners need is to have their sight restored? And so sin isn't just one kind of problem. It's it's many at the same time. Who of us knows what justice demands for this this woman or or for anybody for that matter? Just when we feel we know, just when the experts feel like they know what this woman deserves, here is Jesus saying, yes, her sin is a problem, and it's not your problem. Her sin is a problem, but it's not your problem. He shows mercy. In fact, Jesus' mercy may be the ultimate problem in this story. Let's talk about the mercy problem. Look at his final words to the woman. When all the men are gone, and it's just the, the two of them, just him and Jesus, just him and the woman, and uh, there's nobody here to condemn her, Jesus, he stood up, he said to the woman, he said to the woman, uh, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Listen to her answer. No one, Lord. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. Do not sin anymore. Jesus' mercy is radical. His mercy to her is radical. You know how, you know how radical Jesus' mercy is? Jesus would rather live in a world of self-aware sinners than self-deceived saints. That's how radical Jesus' mercy is. Let me say that again. Jesus would rather live in a world of self-aware sinners than self-deceived saints. Uh, The Reformers had a a phrase for this. Back in the 1500s, Martin Luther, uh, a monk, some of you guys would would know who he is. Um, Martin Luther said that we are, uh, it's a Latin term, simul justus et peccator. Simul justus et peccator. It's a Latin phrase that means that everyone who is a follower of Jesus is all at once, at every moment, both a saint and a sinner. Every one of us is a saint and a sinner. And, and, and you can imagine somebody in this crowd seeing what's just happened, saying, like, okay, um, is that how we are now? Is that the kind of movement you, you've started, Jesus? Are we just forgiving all sinners now? And Jesus is like, that's, that's not your problem. That's my problem. Because what Jesus knows, and nobody else in this story knows, is that a few months from now, Jesus is going to suffer. Jesus is going to be the one executed. Jesus will be separated. He will be defiled. He will become sin so that she can become the righteousness of God. Because unlike the squad who like to deal with sinners by killing them, Jesus says, no, 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 I I would rather die. I would rather die than live in a world without sinners like you. I would rather die than live in a world without sinners like you. Guys, this 
This, what Jesus does here is so, his mercy is so radical. Jesus is what God wants to say to sinners. He is what God wants to say to sinners. Jesus knows all the problems. He knows every story inside out. He knows the Bible better than anyone. He is the only one qualified to condemn sinners. And when this woman looks at Jesus with eyes full of love and gratitude and hope for the first time, and she calls him Lord, she looks at, he, he looks at her and he says, you're not condemned. I don't condemn you. You are not condemned. Now go and live like it. You're not condemned, so go and, and, and live like it. Now, as a, as a church, we pray and we worship and we serve that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven someday. And as we wrestle together with what it means for us to, to be the church in this place, in this culture, in this moment... Um, lost and broken as we are, and uh, confused uh, about, um, about sin and, and, and full of fear, my dream is that as we interact with sinners, that we will, uh, we will say that their sin isn't our problem. Our sin is our problem. You get that? Their sin isn't our problem. Our sin is our problem. Every one of us. We are saints and we are sinners. So we're going to put, let's put down our stones. Let's come to Jesus and bring others with us to find that mercy uh, that changes everything. Amen? Now, uh, before I, I pray, I'll uh, just put, I've, I've got a few questions up here. I'd like, I'd encourage you to take home with you. Uh, these would be great for you to either discuss maybe over dinner in your faith families or just in your, in your quiet times this week between you and the Lord. Number one, can you trust the Lord to sort out justice and mercy for sinners or do you see it as your problem? Can you trust him with this or do you see it as your problem? Number two, how does your life show that you believe Jesus does not condemn you? How does your life show that you believe Jesus doesn't condemn you? Number three, who in your life needs to know that you do not condemn them? Who in your life needs to know that you do not condemn them? Let's pray. Thank you for listening.